Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey and H. Bosch Jr. will be back next week. Today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Nyperg's explanation of the new right to repair law by Mark Dunley. Then Willie Terry attended the Telling the Truth About Poverty in New York State Forum and spoke with attendees about the meaning of MLK, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, his birthday, and his advocacy. Later on, Blaze Bryan highlights one individual's story from the Poor People's Campaign State of the State. And after that, Bria Barthel brings us joyful book suggestions from the Bookhouse. Finally, artist Lavender will join us to talk about her newly released album, Quarantine. But first, here are the headlines. Peter Bertram, an Averill Park high school teacher, was arrested on Tuesday after state police reported finding he had sent indecent and sexually suggestive images and statements to a child under 17. He was charged with endangering the welfare of a child, a misdemeanor. Public health advocates are raising concerns over the packaging and marketing of flavored cannabis that critics say could entice children to partake of products labeled Mad Mango, Loud Lemon, and Peach Dream. New York, which is still slowly rolling out adult recreational sales nearly two years after legalizing marijuana, forbids marketing and advertising that quote, is designed in any way to appeal to children or other minors, end quote. Rensselaer County has opened a new emergency service training complex in North Greenbush. The Duanesburg Town Board will hold a public hearing on January 26th on updating the town's rules on large solar farms. The Gazette reports that the 22-page document is far more in-depth than previous versions and includes an entire section regulating battery energy storage systems and small-scale energy systems. It also includes provisions that address deforestation setbacks and limits on solar panels on farmland. Many local towns have imposed moratoriums on solar projects, which, while they update local zoning provisions. And finally, abortion medication would be dispensed by pharmacists in New York under legalization announced Thursday by Assemblywoman Amy Pauline, the new chair of the Assembly Health Committee. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. So, after five years of advocacy, New York State has become the first state of the nation to enact a law to give consumers the right to repair small electronic devices like smartphones and laptops. Russ Haven of Nyperg discusses what the law will mean for the average person by Mark Dunley. 
We are joined by Russ Haven, who's the uh, general counsel of, of NYPIRG, New York Public Interest uh, Research Group. And we wanted to talk to him about uh, one particular issue that uh, he worked on during the most recent legislative session. And that was something called the uh, right to repair. So, so, Russ, what was this bill about and why is it important to people? This, this legislation, is, it's uh, actually the first in the nation uh, law or bill at this point until the governor approves it, which we hope she will do. Um, and it gives people the right to have a choice about how to fix their digital devices. And by digital device, I mean your cell phone, your laptop, your tablet. It could be a camera, an electronic camera. So any, any typical consumer item that has a digital uh, set of electronics embedded in it, uh, and, and that's, that would be covered by this bill. It doesn't cover things like your your uh, washing machine at home or your microwave, uh, but it does cover common uh, consumer products that have digital components, which is a lot of stuff these days. So would it include, you didn't mention this, but a car, since cars are going, you know, much more electronic. And I remember when I first bought a Prius uh, 15, 20 years ago, having some little challenges with the uh, computer screen and only place you could deal with it was the dealer. Yeah, there, there. Um, it does not cover um, automobiles, um, farm equipment, uh, medical devices, and emergency response technology. Those are four categories that are not uh, covered by the bill. And much of the um, the repairs to automobiles uh, is covered by an agreement among. Uh, the manufacturers where they would make uh, information and tools and parts available uh, for most repairs. And that's, that's why, for the most part, when you have uh, a problem with your car, you can go to a dealership or you can go to uh, a private mechanic to get the repair work done. Uh, but that's, that's not covered by this, this legislation. So how did some of the, uh, you know, say computer companies or phone companies, you know, your smartphones, you know, were they a, you know, supporter or opposed to legislation? And, and B, I, I, I thought they were themselves beginning to loosen in the rules a bit, but I've also heard from some consumers that uh, the way they loosened the rules so far have not been so hot. Yeah, I think not so hot is a, is a good way to put it. Um, there was a big fight and this bill it's 2022 this bill first got introduced back in 2015 and so it's been a seven-year fight uh and the bill got as as is often the case the bill got uh, uh confined somewhat it got it got uh pared down where initially it started there was farm equipment and some other big ticket items included uh, and that came out. But uh, Apple and Amazon and other companies that um, produce digital products for consumers, uh, they were vigorously opposed for years and years. I'm not sure they were thrilled with this, but I think the bill got to a place where they, they realized they, they, they could live with it, um, but I think they were still unhappy. 
And, and the reason they're unhappy is because they make an enormous amount of money by either charging consumers to repair their own items uh, or more likely they try and get you to upgrade and buy a new one, even though the item could be repaired and perform uh, well for years to come. Um, but um, that's, that's not, uh, they don't view that in, in their in their financial interests. So we, we faced a lot of opposition over the seven years of this bill's history. So if you, um, you know, do go out and repair your own phone or, you know, go to a you know, computer store and have them do it, um, that does not negate your warranty, which is what, you know, of course, the, um, the sellers are always trying to say, well, yeah, you can do that, but, you know, if something comes back to get your warranty is voided at this point. Well, it, it wouldn't necessarily um, it wouldn't necessarily void your warranty if it was done sloppily and somehow you damaged the phone. You still might run the risk of, of uh, the warranties, but the warranties, by and large, aren't worth very much um, because they don't have very long lifespans and they don't cover much and they're just really inconvenient. The reason this bill is 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 so important is number one, consumers end up they, they don't have choice, so they end up spending a lot more money to fix stuff. And as I mentioned, they often end up just throwing in the towel and getting a new product. Um, so that means we're overpaying uh, and we're not getting a, a full life to the products we buy. And as you know, these these digital products they're not cheap. Um, several hundred dollars, but certainly it can go over a thousand. The other thing is that we're creating an enormous amount of electronic waste. These cell phones and other digital devices, they have uh, toxic metals in them. They have what are called rare earth metals, which are, they're they're expensive and, um, and they're toxic. And so we're discarding them at an alarming rate with, with no real plan on what to do with them once they're in the trash. Um, and they're either, you know, in some cases they, they get shipped to third world countries where they, there may be some salvage of, of useful materials, uh, but more likely it ends up in a landfill or probably even worse, it ends up in an incinerator where all the toxic constituents are either going out the smokestack or ending up in, in a, a highly concentrated toxic ash residue. So there's real environmental aspects to this bill as well as, as uh, uh, consumer protections that makes it important. And the, the other thing about having options, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or you wanna go to your local repair shop is that it saves people time. And time is really important because if you want your phone fixed by Apple, um, or, or really more likely you don't have a choice that if you have an iPhone, um, they're not going to necessarily fix it immediately. They may have to take your phone and ship it to one of their repair centers overseas. Under this law, what we think will happen is that there will be repair shops in every community who can do the work either on a walk-in basis or maybe overnight for common repairs like replacing batteries, re replacing uh, screens, and other you know typical problems you have with your 
cell phone, laptop, et cetera. You also mentioned one of the bills you worked on, I believe passed, was the uh, wrongful uh, death law. Can you quickly summarize why that's important? New York has a law in the books that allows uh, loved ones to go to court to seek compensation when uh, a close family member or, or someone they're, they're close to, uh, their life has been wrongfully taken. It could be by a drunk driver. It could be by a dangerous product. It could be through an act of uh, medical negligence at a hospital or in a, in a doctor uh, doctor's office. And um, the law has not been changed since 1847. It's 175 years ago. It does not allow New Yorkers to claim emotional losses like the grief and anguish from a death or the loss of the relationship. Um, 48 other states allow those kinds of damages. New York does not. It's, It's New York and Alabama at this point that still are stuck in the mid 1800s. And the other thing it would do is it would expand the classes of people or the types of people who could claim these damages. So for so now you could be living with your uh, partner, you could be planning to get married, you could share a home and mortgage. Um, but if God forbid one of those folks dies, the uh, partner does not have any rights under the law because technically they're not uh, related by blood or married. And, and we think that fails to recognize the reality of modern uh, relationships in the 21st century. Russ, we're out of time. We've been talking with Russ Haven, the uh, general counsel for, for NYPERG, NYPERG.org. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. So New York, again, what we said in the introduction is the first state of the nation to enact this law, the uh, right to repair. And we will have some follow-up stories on how it's looking um, now that it's been passed. So on Monday, Martin Luther King's birthday was his birthday, the 94th birthday. Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the Poor People's State of the State Telling the Truth About Poverty in New York State Forum. This took place in Albany. And while there, Willie spoke with people about what this birthday means to them and if they see progress in the struggle that he advocated for. Yeah, this is a Willie Terry, a Roman labor correspondent, and I'm here today at St. John Church, 74 4th Street in Albany, where the Poor People Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival, is having a forum, a state-to-state uh, forum about poverty in New York State on the 94th birthday of Martin Luther King. Have as my guest... Uh, some people who are going to tell me what this day means to them. I have as my guest Francesca Abrams. Francesca, how you doing, Francesca? I'm doing good. So how Fran- are you? I'm all right, I'm all right. <laughs> so, Francesca, this is the 94th, uh, would have been the 94th birthday of Martin Luther King if he had been alive, you know, and you know what he was fighting for. So let me know your thoughts on this day. Well, I just wished he would have been here to see this, for one thing. And other than that, I'm just grateful to be here to be part of this, what's going on today. So do you think things uh, have changed or improved, or we still got a long way to go? We have a long way to go. It's hard to say. It seems like 
we improved, but don't see it. It's hard to say you see it with all the violence that's still going on, all the suffering, the hunger is just out of control. It's sad. No, I don't see that we paved the way, no. It's sad. It's sad. We're trying and we're still stuck right there. Right where he left, we're still right there. I don't see really no progress, no. All right. All right, Francesco. And let's see what happened on the 95th birthday. That's right. right. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I have as my guest uh, Barbara Baxter, who's a labor leader. How you doing, Barbara? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself? All right, all right. So, Barbara, you know that Martin Luther King died fighting for labor, right, in Memphis, Tennessee. Yes. And if he had been alive today, this would have been his 90, 94th birthday. So, Barbara, what are your thoughts on this day? Oh, I just think that it's one of the most fabulous days for people of all labor organizations and even if you're not in labor to get out and support it because where would we be today if it was not for Dr. King and all that he stood for and all that he did and he died so that we could have a place in the workforce and speak out for people. I believe in supporting workers, you know, and making sure that they're getting treated right and being done for the right thing. Yes, it's a fabulous day. I love it. And I love Dr. King. But one more question I got to ask, Barbara. 94th <laughs> birthday, uh, do you think there have been progress or change, or do you think we have a long ways to go? There has been a little progress, but every time we think we're getting down the road, you take a look and we're going backwards. I think we've got a long way to go, and people need to get out and support it. You have to think about your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. You're making a better life for them. And we all need to band together, no matter what nationality you are. We need to be one in one. And Barbara, I know you're a labor leader. So my last question is, what is the <laughs> role of labor in this process? I'm the second vice president of the Albany County Central Federation of Labor, but I retired from the Albany City School System. I was in their union, but before that, I was with the Teamsters for 18 and a half years. I'm going to have to dig up Jimmy Hoffa. So do you think Labor got to uh, really take the lead in this fight? Yes, really. I think we should. We really should. You know, it, it makes a difference. And then more people. We need to get all of our union people with us as one group. Absolutely, I think the union needs to take this fight on. Dr. King wants us to take the fight on. You see, I carry him with me each right. and every day. And she said, she's got a quote says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Barbara Baxter of the <laughs> Albany Central Labor Council. Yeah. And I have as my guest, Tam Kistler. All right, and how you doing, Tam? I'm doing well. How are you, Willie? All right. So, Tam, we're here at the uh, St. John Church, the Poor People Campaign State of the State Forum on Martin Luther King. So, Tam, tell me, what are your thoughts on this 94th birthday of Martin Luther King? Well, I think Martin Luther King led all of us brilliantly for many years. 
and we have to now stand on his shoulders and move forward because things are not as not going well at all and um, especially white people need to come together and unify against uh, race uh, against racism and, and against anti-semitism and against white uh, superiority so Tim the, the bottom line question is do you think that we have made some progress or you think that we are on the right path or you think we got a long ways to go I think we have a very long ways to go but there are enough people fighting and unifying together that we can start to be on the right path oh, okay all right Tim that's it thank you and I have as my guest uh, Tom who's uh, in the Solidarity Committee of the Capital District. Right. Okay. And how you doing, Tom? Pretty good. How are you? All right. And Tom, I just want to ask you a question. This, this 94th uh, birthday of Dr. King, if he was alive today, what are your thoughts on this day? My thoughts are that he would be, well, he'd obviously be an old man, but he would still be struggling probably in, probably in new and different ways than we could imagine, because obviously he would have he would have matured over all these years to become an even better person than he was. Mm -hmm. um, I went to this I went to the city's march today, and and then they had a few speeches over at the Martin Luther King statue in Lincoln Park in Albany. So Mayor Sheehan spoke, and the Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado also spoke. So the mayor sp spoke a little bit about how the city is using money from the American Rescue Plan to um, build affordable housing in the city of Albany, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, but then she spent the rest of the time talking and in introducing and praising and backslapping the state legislators who were there, the county legislators who were there, and the city council members there who were there, and the city commissioners who were there. And no political content. And then Delgado spoke for a few minutes, and he said that he's always been inspired by Martin Luther King's message of love, and he thought that that was King's most important message. And I almost wanted to heckle him, but I didn't. And But he didn't talk about King and struggle. He didn't talk about civil rights. He didn't talk about workers' rights. He didn't talk about peace. Um, he didn't talk about justice at all. He just, it was like a puff speech. It was disappointing. But afterwards, I walked over to Delgado and I gave him a copy of the Solidarity Notes. <laughs> so I felt pretty good about that. But it was a missed opportunity, right? It could have been, even though it was cold and they wanted to probably have it short for that reason, there could have been some, something relevant there, you know? That's what disappoints me at so many of these events. It won't, it won't at this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tom, one other question too. Now, when King was alive, there, there was wars, you know, there was the Vietnam War right. going on, and probably wars in Africa and different places. And King gave his famous speech at the Riverside Church against war, uh, the war in Vietnam. There, today, there's a war in Ukraine going on. Right. Right. And what are your thoughts on on King? Uh, what would be his views uh, on this war today? Well, obviously, I can't know for sure, but my sense is that he would be calling for an immediate ceasefire, mm -hmm. and or 
or a truce of some type and then work out some sort of a political arrangement from there. But the most important thing is to stop the fighting. Mm -hmm. I think that's where he would be. Okay. I'm, I'm certain he would not be supporting the Americans flooding Ukraine with weapons right. and, and increasing the rest, the tension between the United States and Russia. Mm-hmm. He would not be supporting that. And, and King also said that that we have to be uh, about discussing this war situation because all the money that being sent over there, that if it wasn't for that war, it could be used to help what they are talking about here today, the poor people. That's certainly true. He was very critical of the, not just the wars and the war preparations, but how the money was being wasted, and it could have been used so much better. Almost anything else would have been better than weapons. Probably everything else would have been better than that. Yeah. All right, Tom. Thank you. Let you get back in there. Thank you. Thank you. That was Willie Terry reporting from Albany's Poor People's State of the State telling the truth about poverty in New York State Forum. We'll have more from the Poor People's Campaign from Rochester after the break. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, a great way to support this program is sharing with others, tell your friend, your neighbor. If you think a story will resonate with somebody, that is really a great way to get the word about our program out there. And you can find all today's stories and more. You can find the full episodes and individual stories at our website, mediasanctuary.org. So from another part of the state, Poor People's Campaign also addressed the state of the state. And in this clip, we hear from someone who struggled with homelessness because the social service systems wanted them to prove there was a need despite having nothing. This was edited by Blaze Bryant. The next person that I've invited to speak on behalf of our coalition building community work that we're doing is a young gentleman by the name of Tyrone Hodge. Tyron Hodge is a leader in the Poor People's Campaign, and he is a member of the Rochester Homeless Union. Tyrone has worked effortlessly on making people's lives better and improving his life and making our community a better place. So I've asked Tyrone to come up and just share a little bit of his story and his struggle and what it means like to be part of a community that cares, a community that reaches out and works with one another to make it a better place. So Tyrone Hodge, if you'd be kind enough to come and share a few words with us, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, I entitled my experience, The Fall. Uh, It was not the first experience with homelessness, but the most stressful. Neatly dressed, I thought it would go well in my favor, but things didn't go according to plan. 
The open door mission was a small gathering of individuals and staff members who seemingly polite and concerned. After two weeks, I believe is when I was asked if I was in a case pending with DHS, where I replied that I did not. The individual associates told me that I needed to go and apply, which I did go to the social worker which asked me for receipts to show where I, I had spent my money, where I did not keep receipts of everything I purchased. I, would, I, to, I, I was told, as long as you don't provide receipts, I was not eligible for assistance, which this knowledge, I returned to the shelter and let the attendant know that I was turned down for receiving assistance. After a few moments, I was told I was to be transferred to another location called Boot Haven, where accommodations appeared to be much better than the former. I had more bed, I had my own bed and my own cubicle space. There was a lounging area where you could watch, sit and watch TV. Not having the knowledge of why I had been transferred, I began to get a little comfortable with my surroundings and attempted to think of solutions to my dilemma. After another two weeks had ran its course, I was again approached by a staff member questioning my status with DHS, in which I told him that, I, that they requested receipts of how I spent my monies and were not going to assist me if I don't provide them. The staff member informed me that I had to go again to DHS, even though I had explained to him that they would not help. So off I was to DHS again, this time, the individual that had told me that I was not going to receive assistance, she came out aggressively this time and told me, Mr. Hodge, we already told you, unless you provide the receipts, you will not receive assistance. With my head held down fully, not understanding the predicament I was in, I returned to the shelter to tell them the news. After the news, after the news of my visit to DHS, the social worker that I believe he was at the time, that had, I, I, that I inquired as to why, why would I, why do I have to leave? And he told me, we don't have a way for your stay here. We don't have a way to pay for your stay here. And I, I had my, my last check from Xerox and I offered to pay. And he said, sorry, Mr. Hodge, that's not how it works. So I was off to, I was off to, uh, this was, this was Boot Haven. And since I didn't know the city that well, I circled back to what I know best was to go back to the open door mission. And this time they had what was a bowl where you picked a number that was attached to a bed. And I picked the number that was not attached to a bed three nights in a row and was told that I had to leave. I 
the, the, there was the, se- the second night I, I got lucky with a friend that was in the same predicament and she had met a friend and she, the friend offered to keep her the night and she told the friend not without my friend, which was me. And I slept on the bottom of the bed of the bedpost of the gentleman for that night. And I don't remember the, uh, the third night, but the final night I ended up underneath the bus transit that was not used anymore in Main Street. And it was becoming late in the evening, 12 o'clock midnight. And I was really frustrated, even to the point of tears that I didn't know what to do next. And I had, there were two individuals that came up to me and said, sir, do you have some place to stay tonight? And I said, no, I do not. And she, they told me that there was a 24 hour shelter on Hudson Avenue, which was the House of Mercy at the time, that they would accept you. And I hurry up and went there with my, my two pulley bags and a shoulder bag that I had and got there and the, the attendant let me in and he showed me the, the sleeping quarters. And, you know, it, if, you, if you ever had any chance to have visited the House of Mercy in Hudson, you would know that they were very tight in the quarters and the attendants would lead me down to where I was to sleep. And he would say, watch this guy head, watch this, this lady's arms, because we were in really tight quarters. And waking up in the next morning, waking up the next morning, I you know, observed my surroundings and was kind of trauma, traumatized about the fact of the two other shelters that kicked me out and was waiting for this shelter to also ask me about attending DSS, which, is, which never happened. And a couple of years later, I found out the reason why. And in closing, I want to say that... Uh, I, I find that I need to pay this forward for anyone that would be in this type of predicament that they would also know that there's ways and, and ask another question and not just receive the first answer you receive. Thank you. That was a clip from the Poor People's Campaign State of the State Address over in Rochester, edited by Blaze Bryant. The full recording can be found on the Poor People's Campaign Facebook page, New York State. And if the gray days are giving you the blues, here are 10 books of happiness, delights, and joy recommended by Cheryl McYone of the Book House of Stuyvesant Plaza. Hello, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Back with Cheryl McYone at the Book House in Stuyvesant Plaza, one of the best independent bookstores in the area. So it's been a long, gray January. We can't say don't worry, but Cheryl is here to give us some tips on how to be happy with a collection (laughs) of books about happiness, delights, and joy. So Cheryl, what's your first one? Hi, Bria. Uh, Happy New Year, since that is our theme. Uh, The first book that I have to share is The Good Life, which is a new hardcover by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. And they have a, th- a thesis, which they have um, substantiated, 
through a scientific study of happiness. I won't try to summarize exactly how those studies worked, but what they have come up with as something that we can think about is what makes for a good, fulfilling, and satisfying life? The answer, relationships. And they posit that what we need in order to feel good about ourselves and about life is to have relationships with other people, friends, family, uh, creating relationships, meeting people. It's a really inspiring uh, book. If you're shy, this would probably be a good book for you because it is a, um, a good argument for reaching out. So that's the first one. That sounds great. I know New York Times has been doing a session of wellness things, and one of the days they talked about relationships and had a little quiz to see how good you are at, at creating and forming and keeping relationships. Uh, I think I saw one of those New York Times pieces, and I hope that I'm not borrowing too heavily from it. But um, the, the next one that I came up with is The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. And if you read fiction, you know Matt Haig as the author of The Midnight Library, which has been a bestseller for quite a few weeks the last year. Um, also, um, How to Stop Time. It was his earlier fiction. This, The Comfort Book, is short little chapters, some of them only a sentence long, about how to feel good when you have every reason to feel bad. And I have found it personally to be very comforting in times of sorrow. I just, uh, I'd listened to this as well as read it. And Matt Haig just made me have a different perspective on how to how to look on the bright side without minimizing the um, the suffering and the sorrow that you might be experiencing. So, so you don't have to have everything be happy-go-lucky, which it never will be, in order for yourself mm-hmm. to be at peace and happy. Exactly. One of his chapters is it's okay, and it's a it's a, a very short page long. So I highly I do highly recommend Matt Haig. That's great. It's a beautiful, light, uh, sort of turquoisey blue cover with starlit things all over it. So just looking at the cover will bring happiness. This is true. I feel that, too. As well as as Matt Haig, my go-to next to me on the bedside table always is Anne Lamott. Um, She has written a number of books that you probably have heard of. Plan B, Operating Instructions about uh, Why Don't Babies Come With. That one is probably 30 years old. I read that because um, Anne and I have the same age son, and um, I remember it well. So that kind of got me started on my Anne Lamott um, go-to. She is a, a Californian. She lives in Mill Valley. She is quite prolific, and her philosophy is pull yourself up, look on the bright side, and she's not smarmy, and she's very spiritual, but not what you would call religious. And she can use salty language in the same sentence as referring to um, the Holy Father, um, and, it, and it feels right. She just makes you happy. She's also very funny. So this one in my hand is Dusk, Night, Dawn. The one that I uh, really go to as much as this one is help, thanks, wow. She maintains those are the only three prayers we need. And that's a good one to keep in mind if you're feeling at all um, overwhelmed. Help, thanks, wow. So Anne Lamott, always. Next. Well, uh, this might be repetitive. Bria and I have spoken before, and I hope that I haven't talked too much about Ross Gay. Uh, Ross Gay is a a poet. He teaches at um, Indiana University in Bloomington, and he has a number of books. The Book of Delights is now in paperback. It's about two years old. And The Book of Delights, he started on his 42nd birthday when he determined to write a positive essay every day for a year. 
And he didn't quite get to 365, but that's okay because it's it's a, a substantial little book as it is. Again, a, a page or two or three long of wonders in nature, wonders in the world, wonders of relationships, of strangers being nice to each other um, just suddenly and spontaneously. And he finds and notices these, these joys in life and writes them beautifully because he is a poet. So the Book of Delights, again, it's a great one just to pick up and open randomly because you'll feel better. And his second one, which came out this fall, is Inciting Joy. It is also essays. It's on the same order as um, as the Book of Delights, but these essays are a little bit longer. They move quickly. Uh, again, you can read them just randomly. You don't have to think that you have to sit down and read this book. Just keep it at hand and it'll make you feel better. One of the members in my book club had actually introduced me to the Book of Delights and it does live up to its title. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good to hear. And my last nonfiction recommendation is uh, a writer, Margaret Rankle. And Margaret writes, uh, I think, a weekly column in the New York Times, so you may be familiar with her already. She's from the South. She lives in Nashville. And she's been called um, a wonderful chronicler of the South. And I don't feel that. I feel she's a wonderful chronicler of the world and of nature. Um, I know she thinks of herself as a Southerner, and so there is that kind of a gentility maybe about her writing that would be a, a stereotype of Southern writers. But uh, Late Migrations has a beautiful cover. Uh, it's an outline of a woman's face, and it's filled with all kinds of flora and fauna. She, she writes about, again, wonders of nature, um, not so much life in general, but nature. She acknowledges hardships and sorrows and tragedies in nature, but always puts a spin on it that we can do something about it or we can look at, at the beauty in nature. Again, it's a collection of essays and it can be read um, a little bit at a time. So those are some uplifting nonfiction Great. And that's one, two, three, four, five, six nonfiction books. And now we have a few more fiction books. And these are all from 2022, 2023, right? No. <laughs> um, one is, I'll, I'll tell you as, as I go along. Love and Saffron is from um, 2021. It's going to go into paperback any minute now. And the author is Kim Fay. And Love and Saffron is uh, basically a novel in letters between two women, one a young woman who is in um, Los Angeles, and she writes a fan letter to uh, an author who lives um, in the uh, Puget Sound area in the San Juan Islands, and she's a food writer. And they begin a correspondence, and eventually it becomes a friendship. They do get to meet. It's a, a novel of letters, friendship, and recipes. And the recipes are really quite accessible. It's a lot of fun. The other wonderful thing about this book is it's a younger woman and an older woman. And it, it kind of illustrates how those kinds of unexpected friendships can bring such joy. Love and Saffron. This was on a, a, a Best of 2022 broadcast when I was driving back from Buffalo that a station in Syracuse put together. And I learned the term epistolary novel. Yes, it's an epistolary novel. I love that word. I love epistolary novels. And this is one of the best of, uh, of the recent crop. And it is going to paperback. If you or your book club likes to stick to a less expensive format, it's going to be, I didn't look up the exact date, but it's going to be very soon. And we've got just another minute or two. 
one of our staff members, um, who's actually the kids' buyer and doesn't read a lot of grown-up books, this is what she calls them, absolutely loves The Fortnight in September. And it was written in 1931. It is, as, um, as you would guess, about two weeks, and it's a British family who goes to the seashore for two weeks every September. And it's joyful, it's family stories, it's peaceful. It doesn't have any of our current woes because it was written in 1931. And it's a beautiful um, British style of writing. It's so uplifting. And we, we highly recommend this one for someone who comes in and says, I just want to be happy. Nina George wrote The Little Paris Bookshop, which was very popular. It's a few years old now. I wanted to mention it because she has a new one coming out in 2023, The Little Village of Book Lovers. We're all about books about bookstores here, and this is going to be our next big recommend. Those are great. So those are the fiction books, Love and Saffron, The Fortnight in September, The Little Paris Bookshop, and The Little Village of Book Lovers. If people want to order these or come in, tell us a little bit about the book house. Oh, thank you. Uh, Well, we are here seven days a week, and you can always come in and browse and ask our advice. We're happy to give that. If you can't make it in, please call us. We'll look up titles for you, let you know the availability. And we also have a website that you can refer to, but we're more than happy to answer the phone if you call and want to talk to somebody who might be able to offer advice over the phone. And also special order books. We special order books that can come in between two and five days from the time of ordering them. And we're always happy to do that and do research for you. Great. Thank you. And once again, that's Cheryl McKeown at the Book House of Stuyvesant Plaza. And they have another store in Troy, the Market Block Books. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you, Bria. And thanks to our listeners. Hope to see you soon. That was our book correspondent, Bria Barthel, bringing us regular content on books, keeping our book lists well stocked. And I love the joyful list. Um, And for our last segment, we head into music. Quarantine is the new album from Lavender. And in the album notes, she wrote, it has been a wild ride for everyone the past few years. And I just hope that these songs make you feel a little less alone and a little more, more joyful. Lavender, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine and congratulations on your album release. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All the songs on this album were written since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, a difficult time for many people. Can you walk us through the creative process? I assume there were some ups and downs. What was that like? It's funny you use the, the phrase ups and downs because literally I think uh, on the fourth track, the first words of the song are ups and downs and lefts and rights. Um, so that's really funny. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I pulled out my my handy song writing notebook here. Oh, and the first song on the album was written in February of 2020. So, um, and there's seven total songs. So, you know, over the span of two, two or three, two to three years, so February 2020, um, that was like a month before shutdown. Right, yeah. So you were feeling it already. You knew it was <laughs> yeah. coming. Although yeah, many of um, us were like, no, nah, this is going to be a breeze. And you were like, no, nah, this is this yeah, is something. I, I, I think I was in, in college at the time. And I think at that time we were still in person. Um, and, you know, we had I had gotten wind of 
of this mysterious virus and that there were rumors about like the school sh closing down and stuff um but yeah that's uh kind of how it all started and then just the next couple years were just as you know a lot of emotions <laughs> how was music an important coping mechanism for you to process this journey it's everything i mean um I've been writing songs since I was about six years old. Um, and I'm an only child. I feel like that's important to mention. I'm an only child for a lot of my life. I was raised by my my single mom, mostly. Um, so growing up, it was a little lonely. And, and music was always there for me. And I was always able to use it to express myself in... Like I, I find it, I find it easier to express myself lyrically as opposed to just talking. Um, so when I'm able to kind of write out my thoughts and in a rhyming manner, <laughs> it I don't know, it just helps me figure out what I'm what I'm going through. So it doesn't mean that your life is like a musical, right? You just like sing your feelings all the time. <laughs> well, I mean. That would no, be amazing. The short answer is I'm no. just saying that would be amazing. No, but but yeah, I mean, I've it's always been my way of communicating, especially when there's something that I don't know how to communicate otherwise. So during the pandemic, for many musicians, um, taking out the collaborative aspect of music and thriving off the energy of an audience was a big loss. Is music for you a collaborative thing? Could you talk about that, the isolation of creating this music? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a solo artist, um, but I have worked with with other musicians before, not not directly on a on to produce a song together per se. Um, although, yeah, I mean, I've always been kind of a, a independent solo creator, if that helps answer the question um everything everything that I release is all it's all me like I, I do I'm, I'm I'm kind of I'm the one I'm a one-man show <laughs> um and um I've produced it out of my out of my house so um yeah but on the one hand it's nice to be alone with and you know work independently but on the other hand you do miss that collaborative feedback and stuff does that answer the question yeah absolutely i mean every music musician creates their work differently and i think more so now is it can it music be done on its own so it's very interesting just to know the process behind all of this was um was this a, I mean, we talked about this being like a coping mechanism. Do you feel like there needs to be a certain kind of struggle for artists to remain creatively inspired? No, I mean, I've written a lot of stupid songs. I mean, um, but they're still good. Like, definitely, I feel like if you have, if, if you're coming from a pace, place of pain that can add a lot of a lot of really good creativity to what you're doing but I mean as long as the emotion is there whether it's really happy or really angry you know 
as long as you're putting your heart into it, into what you're creating, I think it's going to come out to be, to be a good creation. And you mentioned that you began creating music with six years. That's very early. <laughs> what incentivized you to start musically expressing yourself and what were your instruments? Um, so I didn't start learning actual instruments uh, till a bit later. Um, I think well, I got my vocally first... is an instrument, right? That's true. That's true. My my first non-human body part instrument when I was like seven. I think that's when I got like my one of those first act guitars. Um, was mm -hmm. around around seven years old. Um, but music has always been a part of my life. My grandfather was actually a famous Jamaican singer. Um, my mom and I would sing in church when I was little. Um, my uh, my great grandfather uh, played the piano, and um, my grandmother uh, played the piano and still does a little bit. Um, so it's just always I was always exposed to music, and um, always drawn to it. So. Yeah, you were swimming yeah. in it, sounds like. It was like a part of the fabric of your life. Yeah. yeah. And your history. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your grandfather, Jamaican singer. Do you feel like that thread, that musical spirit goes through you? Do you have any influence of your Jamaican roots? Um, musically, not so much. I'm actually um, working on... Uh, a little surprise my, my family doesn't even know about this but um i'm, I'm planning to release a, a, a reggae-ish song in the near future probably not the near future it takes a lot of time but i digress what was the question the you know the ancestry coming through you into your music right um yeah i mean i don't know about like musically in terms of like you know structure and whatnot um but that's definitely, I got my rhythm from my blood <laughs> and it's definitely, definitely in my blood. That So that's what I can say to that. So the title song off of your album, Quarantine, is One Day. So let's take a quick listen. Social distancing at home we're stuck All winter through the spring and yeah it sucks But I have faith that we will get I think your description of uh, joy, joyful music is, is really perfect here, and it does feel very uplifting. What, what should we know about this song, and why did you choose it as the title track? Yeah, so um, about a few days before the album release, I released a pre-order where um, if you bought the pre-order, you would get instant access to one day or one day at a time, uh, which is like the single, um, because... I wanted the first impression to be a hopeful one. This album is very heavy. Um, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of happy emotion and a lot of dark, sad emotion. Um, Cause you know, it was written during the pandemic and a lot went down. Um, so for the listeners, please, before you listen to the album, please look at the notes um, for 
that are in the description and the description of each track for a warning of what you might encounter. Um, so there's some triggering um, topics, but one day is a is a is a great place to start, um, especially if you're not feeling so great. Because um, I wanted to to let people know that you can. We're gonna get through this, you know. Have some hope, um, and you know we're all we all feel the pain of this of this crazy world. So, for listeners who want to hear more from your music, where can they listen? Yeah. So, a quick short stop for everything that I do. Uh, go to musicfortheworld.rocks. So it's not .com. It's not .org. It's .rocks. That's R-O-C-K-S. Um, and Music for the World is the nonprofit that I started, which centers around music. The proceeds will go to charity, which is the whole point of Music for the World. Our mission is to use music to support various charities and mu- movements agro- across the globe. Thank you, Lavender. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And listeners can hear more of you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine as a producer. Also, there's a bonus track. If you buy the album, there's a hidden track that you can't see right now. So that's something. Thank you so much, Lavender. Thank you so much. Bye. That was Lavender. And that new album is Quarren Scene, written and produced entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic and released on January 10th, 2023. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bzilahicki. And we want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley. We have Willie Terry. We have uh, Blaze Bryant, Bria Barthel, and um, H. Bosch Jr. in spirit. We'll be back next week. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. (laughs) 